Well, thank you once again for the uh, invitation and the welcome. It is really good to be uh, here with you. I'm going to just move this. It's, not really dis it's a bit disconcerting seeing the word no staying in your face all the time when you're trying to preach. So. On the 6th of January, uh, 1850, it was a snowy day in Colchester, and a young man was unable to get to his normal church, and he ended up in a small chapel. There were 12 to 15 people present. Uh, the preacher didn't make it either, and uh, someone else ended up standing in. He was a, a shoemaker or a tailor. He was obviously not particularly familiar with having to preach. But he turned to Isaiah chapter 45 and to verse 22, which says, turn to me and be saved. I think in his verse it said, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And he said, it's a very simple text. It just says, look. It doesn't take much effort. It is just to look to God and to be saved. And he said, anyone can look. So all you need to do is look. Then he says, look unto me. Many look to themselves, which is no good. And they won't find comfort. But you need to look to me, hanging on a cross, dead and buried and rising and ascending. Look, look, look. Then he noticed the, the young man who had come, who wasn't normally there. And he turned to him and he said, you, young man, look very miserable this morning. And you will stay miserable until you obey this text. You need to look. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. And he did. And that moment, he said, he saw the sun. That young man was called Charles Spurgeon. And he went on to be a very influential preacher in London and also in the, uh, the, the Fen country. God used him mightily. Well, today, we're going to build up to that text. We're going to Look at Isaiah 44 from verse uh, 25 th right the way through to see the context of uh, this great exhortation. Uh, it's important to remember these chapters of Isaiah from 40 to 48 are essentially a courtroom drama in which uh, uh, God is accused of ignoring his people and um, uh, neglecting them when they are in trouble, when they are far away in exile. And God's response is the neglect. It's not neglect. It's punishment, punishment for your sin and your waywardness. But I am the true God. I am the king of history and I will save. So in the, bar, the part that we are listening to God speak into that uh, uh, setting and uh, speak through that setting then to us we have a, a declaration an objection and then an invitation and I hope as we go through this it will help us to look up from our own lives and circumstances and look to the great God who is the king and the Lord and there is none other so first of all then a declaration 
The declaration is quite simple. God says, I am the Lord. So you see it in 44.24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed, you, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord. And uh, you see it again in 45.3. And uh, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he is emphatic. He doesn't just say, I am the Lord. He says, there is no other. And that's a constant refrain that comes through this. God is claiming that he alone is God. And um, so you see that in 45.5. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. You see that in 45.6. I am the Lord. There is no other. You see it in verse 18. Uh, 45. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. You see it in verse 21. Um, uh, Who is it? Not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me. And then you see it in verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So God is making this bold declaration, this strong, clear, emphatic, exclusive Some might say it's arrogant, but he is declaring that he alone is God and king. And so the aim of this passage, for those who it was first written for, and for us reading it today, is to get us to see and accept that God really is God. And that he is God in all that that means. That he is Lord and King. Now on what basis does he make such a declaration? Maybe you're sat here saying, I know that's what the Bible says, but is that really true? Maybe you're sceptical about these claims that the God of the Bible is making, that he alone is God. But God doesn't just make his declaration he he explains it and he illustrates what he is he is saying so basically through this passage he is claiming full and final responsibility for everything that happens in history he says i really am the sovereign god who is in control of everything so 4424 says the last bit of the verse who alone stretched out the heavens who spread out the earth by myself. He's saying, I'm the creator God who made everything in this world. And then uh, 45.7, and uh, the, the last line of it says, I am the Lord who does all these things. And uh, between those opening and closing statements, he expands his point and bringing everything to that conclusion. So he's saying, not only does he make everything, but he is in control of everything. He really is God. So let's just tease out the detail. He directs history to fulfill his word. So uh, um, you see that uh, from the end of verse 24, where he begins with creation. He stretches it out. And then in the next verse, he says, verse 28, frustrations 
the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jer of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. He did it by himself. He made the world. He had no assistance. He spoke and it came to be. He alone is God. And he's the one that decides what takes place in our world and in history. He says there might be many people who are speaking and saying this is going to happen and that's going to happen. But he is the one that brings to pass what actually comes to be. The world's just like it was then is, is full of prophets and pundits and commentators all trying to guess what's going to happen. And, but it's God who decides. He is king. And uh, he uses the example of Jerusalem in uh, verse 26. She shall be inhabited and the cities of Judah, they shall be built. You've got to remember that this was written, it was written beforehand, but it's speaking to the people when they're in exile in Babylon, far away. Jerusalem is lying in ruins and yet God is saying, I will rebuild them. This is what's going to come. And it might seem, for the people at that time, seem impossible. But God says it's going to happen, and so it will. He can say, verse 27, to the bottom of the sea, be dry, and it will be. He's, you imagine that, the bottom of the ocean with all the weight of water, and yet if God says, be dry, it will. We live in very uncertain times, don't we? We're facing election at some point in the next year. So is America. There's wars going on in the Middle East and in Ukraine. And it can feel like the tectonic plates of our world and society are shifting and changing and people are speculating about what's going to happen and what's going to come to pass and what is around the corner. And then we think of the cost of living crisis and all that's connected with that and then the, all the uncertainty that that brings right down to us individually and to our lives. And it can feel very disconcerting, isn't it, when you're not sure what is what is going to come but here God is saying actually I am the Lord of history I am the God who made the world and who brings everything to pass I am the king no one else just me and then he gives us an example of Cyrus a king he's raised up to do God's work so uh uh, this uh, comes in verse 28 of chapter 44, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be built. Now we just need to understand a little bit of history of what's going on. When Isaiah is writing this, 
none of this has happened. He's writing 150 years before the people end up in captivity. And yet through Isaiah, God says he's going to raise up a guy called Cyrus, who will be the anointed of the Lord to take his people from exile back to Jerusalem and to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything of your Old Testament history, you will know that there is a king called Cyrus who comes. It's recorded in the book of Daniel. And he comes and uh, uh, he's the one that issues the decree to send the people back. He's the Persian conqueror who defeats Babylon and will set the Jewish people free. And send them home to rebuild. But God already has it mapped out. Written 150 years beforehand. And he is saying he's my shepherd. He's going to do what I want him to do. Then he speaks uh, to his anointed in chapter 45 and verse 1. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. And to loose the belts of kings. And to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. God is telling his people how, in effect, he speaks to Cyrus and directs what he wants to happen so that God will fulfil his purposes. Now, it's very clear, because when you get to verses 4 and 5, that this guy, Cyrus, doesn't acknowledge God. But God is still using him to fulfil his purposes, because God alone is God. So God not just makes this declaration of how he and explains how he directs history to fulfill his word, but he gives a, an incredible example, Did detailed, as I said, 150 years before it happens, and which then comes to pass exactly as, as prophesied. God delights to do his will. Verse 8, shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. This is the conclusion that God, of the God of heaven is one who is showering blessings upon his world. And so that's why it's important to couple with this great declaration that God is sovereign and control. He alone is God and king, that his his intention is to do good and to bring blessing. Which, of course, for the people stuck in exile is a message of great comfort and encouragement. And all that is described with regard to Israel, because some of what you read here cannot be just explained in terms of the coming back of uh, the Israelites, after the exile, there's a much bigger scale, a bigger view of that God is going to do something profound that's going to affect the whole world, that he's got intention of bringing blessings to the whole world. But God has laid out his stall. He alone is God. He created and sustains the world. And he's shown how that is true. That is a, 
a terrifying and comforting truth. It's terrifying, isn't it, to think that every detail of our lives and our history is mapped out and God knows. Sometimes when things are uncertain and difficult and, um, you know, to think that God knows and yet he has chosen to take us through this. But at the same time, it's wonderfully comforting and reassuring to know that the good God of heaven knows what he is doing, that he has a plan and purpose, that he is God and nothing is going to stand in his way. There is none other. That leads us on then to... Chapter 45, 9 to 13, an objection. Remember the, the context of uh, this courtroom drama. Uh, and uh, uh, in these chapters from 40 to 48, it's not just God who is there, but he's being contrasted with the idols and the false gods who cannot do anything. And God is making his, his declaration here that he alone is God. And then there is in verses 9 to 13 then a, a warning and a challenge to those that would, that would challenge God and say, well, you're not really in control. You're not really God. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. So it's those who are arguing back, as it were. Now, what, why do we need this uh, this warning and this challenge in this middle section, as it were. Why can't God go from his great declaration to his invitation? Well, of course, the, the reason is because not everyone believes God is God. There were, there were doubters in that time who were saying, God has made all these claims, and yet here we are, stuck in exile under Babylonian rule. How can God be God when he's allowing this to happen? He's just forgotten about his people and his promises. And so many today, don't they, in our society and culture, have no time for God. Who would be angry with God. Object to God. Some would cite suffering that they have experienced or the suffering going on in the world and they say how can God be good and kind when and sovereign when all of these things happen whether it's 9-11 or wars or tsunamis or cancer or unemployment or whatever thing it is that people go through and they say how can God allow this Rather, it's they say, how can a God of love send people to hell? Surely that's inconsistent with this God of kindness that the Bible talks about. What, why is Christianity so exclusive? Why does it constantly say that this is the only way to God? Why can't God accept people from other religions? How can one be right? Why are there so many wars going on? These are the different objections that people bring, isn't it? To say, we don't believe in God. We don't believe these claims that he's making. And there are good questions there that need to be taken seriously. All of which, therefore, there are good answers. And if you're 
if you're grappling with those things, then I would encourage you to keep going on that journey. Get the, the answers for them. Don't just, uh, as it were, just cite something without thinking it through. Look at the, the claims. Weigh it up. Look at what God is saying. Look at the answers that are given to those uh, questions. For me, the bottom line is this. It makes more sense of life to believe in God than not. How else did the world come to be? You notice how the scientists who try and explain where a world came from with their different theories, but they have no explanation of where, how it all started. They might be able to give an explanation of how it got to be here, but they don't have any explanation for how can you have something from nothing. The only logical explanation of that is that there is a God who has always been there. How did we get life? It's one thing, isn't it, to have matter, but to have life. Life that can recreate. For me, the only explanation of that is that there is a God who breathes life into the things that he has made. And then, of course, there's the person of the Lord Jesus who stands in the middle of history who suddenly came and did things that only God could do, and then lived and died and rose again from the dead, a, a fact of history which has been impossible to, for people to undermine. When you start to put all of these things together, for me it, it just adds up and makes sense and holds together. But before we consider what God says to those who are challenging him. We just need to, because we can become, if we do believe in God, we can become a bit arrogant, can't we? And we need to remember that all of us have a habit of challenging God in his sovereignty. Even when we say we believe in God, we still want this God who we believe in to do our bidding. And we get very angry with God when he doesn't do what we want him to do. You see, the reality is that every one of us wants to be on the throne. And either we deny God and try and put our, take control, or we try and control God and say, God, this is how you have to do it. And we need to remember that the stakes are high. This isn't just an intellectual question. This is about who is in control of our world who is in control of your life and where you and I fit in to that reality. And God says, be careful, verse 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. He's warning. And then he says, a pot among earthen pots. He say, he's, he's, and then he says, does the clay say to the one who formed it, what are you making? He, so he's picturing a piece of broken pottery that has been discarded and uh, among lots and then he's saying who are you to speak back to the God who made you and so he's he's imagining then uh, 
you know, a potter sitting at the, the wheel of a pot, and I don't know whether you've ever tried to do this, and, and, you know, from the lump of clay and make it into something. And he's picturing the pot then speaking back and saying, no, don't do it like that. I want to be a bit thinner here and a bit fatter there, and I want an arm there or a handle here. And he'd go, like if, you know, if a piece of lump of clay started talking back, you'd go, hang on a minute, I'm the one making, not you. But he's saying that's what we end up doing with God. He is the potter, we're the clay, and yet we're the ones saying, God, no, 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 this way, that way, this way. He said, hang on. And then he gives another example. Verse 10, woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labour? He's saying, it's like children saying back to their parents, no, no, you don't do it like this, dad or mum, you do it like this. I think quite a lot of children do do that, don't they? Because, again, this sense of wanting to be in control and be in charge and be at the centre that's there because of our sinfulness. And God says, take heed, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask of me of things to come. You will command, sorry, Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man in it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all the host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for a price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying, you don't tell me what to do. I'm the planner says God. I'm the one who is working everything out. And then he comes back to, to Cyrus. Even though he is a heathen king, he will fulfill my great plans and purposes. God is not offended by honest questions. But he is offended when we try and sit on the throne. And that is too often what is really behind our questions and our attitudes and our mindset is that we want to be God. And that's the root of sin. And that is the root of the problem of us as human beings. And we have the cheek to speak back to the God who made us. And in this chapter, he's... he's declaring I'm God and he's warning us to say you're the ones who I made and I'm controlling your life and history and so you need to fall into line as it were and see that I am God but then thirdly there's a a glorious invitation that comes in the final section that builds up from verses 14 through to 22. He begins by saying that the world will see that I am the only true God. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you. There is no other, no gods beside him. He's saying, A day is going to come when all the different nations of Egypt and of 
Cush and of Sabaeans are going to acknowledge and say, surely God is with you. There's no other God. They're going to see it eventually. And then Isaiah speaks about God from verses 15 to 17 to say, you are the God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Saviour. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. He's saying this is the God who saves. This God has a plan. Now, at this point, this is one of these points where in the book of Isaiah, you see that the horizons are much bigger than just the people coming back from exile. Suddenly, the way it's speaking, it's speaking in bigger, bolder terms which encompass the whole world. So it talks here about everlasting salvation. He's not just talking about a group of people coming back to live in Jerusalem until they die. He's talking about salvation which lasts forever and ever. He's got a much bigger picture of what God is going to accomplish in the days to come. And saying God will keep you. This is a God who saves people to know him and to enjoy him forever and ever. That's his great plan. And the, the exile that is being spoken about is just a picture of something far greater that God is going to do. Where he's going to gather people from all nations together to know and to enjoy him and to love him. And then God again speaks in verse 18. The God who made everything says he wants a world full of people. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. This is a God who, who made the whole reason for making the world and making people was to have them in fellowship with him, to be able to enjoy him and his presence. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as it were, were opening the arms of their family to say, we want more to know us and to enjoy us. He alone is God, but he's not kept himself hidden. He's made himself known. As verse 19 said, I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the tr truth. I declare what is right. And then in verse 20, he says, Assemble, everybody, gather, come, draw near. All the survivors of the nations. Again, it's much broader than just uh, Israel. He's saying, come, draw, everybody who've been following other gods or idols, but come, listen, I have something to say. We've all been in situations where, isn't it, like... Christian at the beginning calling us to gather round and listen the, the service is about to begin or if you've been on a, a camp or a conference there's usually somebody's job it is to herd people in so that things can everybody can listen and hear what has to be said I was away earlier this week with a group of guys and like they would just keep talking unless I said 
Come on, time we go and eat or time we go and uh, have our meeting. They were quite happy to be herded and directed like that. Well, here is God saying, assemble yourselves. He wants everybody to hear, to listen. He's got something incredible and vital that he wants the whole world to say here. And this is what he says. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is no other. The same God whom we have offended by trying to sit on his throne. The same God that we have tried to direct to make life easier for us. The God who has declared that he alone is God and King and Lord. The one who has taken them into exile to punish them for their sins. The one who says that the idols are not gods at all, but he alone is God. This God says, turn to me and be saved. To the very ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. He is offering forgiveness. He's offering that we be restored to new life with him. He's offering us everlasting salvation. It's very clear that he's offering deliverance. Verse 24 of 45. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed. All who, are, who were incensed against him. In verse 25, in the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. He's saying despite the fact that we've behaved in a way that bring, is, brings his anger, he's uh, is incensed against them, but now that's going to be turned away. They're going to be justified. How's he going to do that? Well, in these chapters of Isaiah, we're introduced to the servant. The servant who is going to come and be obedient and suffer and die. And that servant, as the New Testament makes plain, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one that is going to come and lay down his life and take upon himself the sin and the punishment that we should have but he'll take it in our place that's how God can those who were incensed against him can be justified and that's why God can make this great invitation for us to turn to him and to be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none other and it is to all to the very ends of the earth, whoever you may be. You can be saved. You simply need to look to God. And God has, we have the advantage of living not just after the events that have, were immediately being spoken of have come to pass, but we live even further on in the, the, the great Messiah, the, the fully anointed one of the Lord Jesus, the servant has come and has died and risen again. So we, we know this is not just an idea, but God has fulfilled his intentions and Jesus has come and died and risen again. 
You see, these are not empty words like the politicians' promises. They're going to do this, going to do that. If you elect me, we'll do this. And they certainly want to do those things, don't they? And they try, but often they're just not powerful enough to be able to do what they want. But God is, because he is God and there is no other. And so when he plans something, it comes to pass. And it's very easy to make promises, isn't it, when that you're going to do something when somebody else is going to have to pay for it. But God makes a promise and then pays for it himself. He says, I will have you and I will pay for your sin. My beloved servant, my son, will come and pay for your sin. So have you responded to the invitation of the one true God who says, turn or look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Just like the preacher in 1850 who suddenly found himself in that chapel having to speak And he turned to these words and beckoned those in front of him to turn and to be saved. Maybe you're sat here and said, yes, I looked a long time ago. But I don't know about you, but I love these words as a fresh encouragement to look again to the great God who says, I am God and there is none other. Because we get so bogged down, don't we, in all of the events of life. They take over our minds and hearts so easily. And so it's great to hear this call from God himself to lift our eyes and look to him and to trust him. And now's the time, not tomorrow or next week, or month, or year, today. So back to our courtroom drama. Imagine you're sat in the gallery watching this unfold between the different gods of the world making their claims. And now the living God has said, I am the only God. And then he turns to all in the gallery and he says to all of you, turn to me and be saved. For I am God and there is none other. What's your answer? Are you just going to sit and say, oh, that was interesting? Or are you going to respond and say, yes, I'll look, I'll turn, I want to be saved. I want to know this God for myself. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great declaration that you have made, that you alone are God. And Lord, we are naturally, our hearts,
find that hard to accept because we want to be in charge. Help us to see that you alone are God. And then to hear these glorious words of invitation and to respond. That we might turn from our selfish, sinful ways and turn to you and be saved. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who came and paid the price, that great obedient servant, that we might be forgiven and know you and have everlasting salvation. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to...